0: So, Junk Science and the American Criminal Justice System by Chris Fabricant is, it's it's not a book about how mainstream science, accepted science, is abused. It's about junk science. And I don't know that we've given that definition. Then again, you kind of need to know it as we continue on with this story from this new book next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Uh, it, so, if you were listening last night, you heard that great interview with uh, J. Y. of Sticks. He was so fun. You know, it's hard to think he's seventy-five years old, for that matter. He's not even the oldest guy in the band, or used to be anyway. Uh, and if uh, you want to hear that, you can always become a Coast Insider at Coast to Coast AM. Dot com. And this is the kind of show you're going to want to share, too. So we're talking with Chris Fabricant. We just got up to this idea, too, that these well-paid celebrity expert witnesses come in to a market uh, where there's a, a high-profile trial. It's hard to imagine that they spend as much time. To me, it's hard to imagine them studying the evidence as much as they're studying the menu, deciding whether or not they're going to have the lobster thermidor. Um, but regardless, these are people who got kind of used to this celebrity lifestyle and seemingly are willing to say just about anything in order to keep this uh, gravy train rolling.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's often true. You know, I mean, it's not true with all junk scientists. You know, much of it is in, you know, the way that I define junk science in the book is subjective speculation masquerading as scientific evidence. You know, it sounds right. like science, you know, it looks like science, you know what I mean? And there's lots of scientific jargon being whipped at the juries, you know what I mean? But there's really no research to back it up. It's just somebody's opinion. Right. The subjectivity is a really important piece of this because with subjectivity comes bias. And, and it's not it's not even conscious bias, cognitive bias is subconscious. And so often what, you know, we see as humans, what we want to see and what we expect to see. And I'll give you an example. You know, we talked about fingerprints, as fingerprints being, you know, much more reliable technique than many other forensic techniques, but you can make it pretty junky. And, you know, there was a famous misidentification of Brandon Mayfield, um, uh, for the, the bombing of the commuter train in Madrid, Spain in 2004 based on a false fingerprint match. And Brandon Mayfield was a mild-mannered... I tell the story in the book. He was a mild-mannered lawyer in, in Portland, Oregon who'd never been even out of the country. And what happened was, though, is that um, there were blast caps found at the scene of this um, devastating crime where hundreds of people died and thousands were injured. And they found a latent print on the plastic bags that um, contained the blast caps. And they weren't very high-quality prints. And then um, they were matched to Brandon Mayfield, who had done a stint in the Army, and that's why they had the prints. And he was arrested and held in for weeks. And he kept insisting that this was not my fingerprint. And so his defense attorneys hired an independent expert to re-examine the prints. And he concluded that they were Brandon Mayfields. And so then the court, in an extraordinarily rare move, appointed another expert, another independent expert, highly qualified and, um, to do another analysis, and that expert concluded that it was Brandon Mayfield's print. And it wasn't until the Spanish authorities identified an alternative suspect who was much better fit for this crime than a known terrorist, that the FBI admitted that they were wrong, and Brandon Mayfield was released. Hmm. And you know when the, the aftermath of this is a thunderbolt across the forensic community because fingerprints are thought to be very reliable and unique. You know that everybody's fingerprints are unique, which is not a scientifically validated fact. And what's more important, fingerprints that so we don't know how similar two print, prints are because with latent, we're just talking about smudges at crime scenes. And so, Dr. ETL George did a really, really interesting study after this. And what he did is that he took a group of highly qualified forensic experts, uh, latent fingerprint experts, and he gave them casework and asked them to do an evaluation. What was clever is that he didn't tell any of these experts that they were evaluating their own prior casework. Ooh. these are prints that they had already come out. Right. And the only thing that he changed was the irrelevant case information that was included in the case file. Something like a suspect confessed or there's an eyewitness or something like that. Right, right, right. Three-fifths of them, three-fifths, changed their original conclusion based on totally irrelevant information that had nothing to do with the fingerprints at all. Right. So that's the power of the mind to see what we want to see. And And compliance. Right. Right.
0: And a need there to is. want to belong or a need to be, to feel
1: right. 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 And so they rely on all these other case facts. So, you know, Levine, when he was examining the entry entries, Teresa's prone thigh, you know, I mean, Keith Harward had already been, you know, I mean, he was, he was under arrest. He was a known biter. He matched a description. And I'm sure he felt like he was right, you know, and then there was another dentist who backed him up even after all these, you know, him being originally concluded. Are excluded from you know a uh, you know from the, having made the bite mark.
0: I had forgotten about the Marv Albert case until you mentioned it.
1: Right. Yes. I mean that that's uh, the other dentist in Keith Harward's trial where, went on to fame and testifying and there was bite mark evidence in in Marv Albert's case. <laughs> poor right. Guy, or poor woman, really. The, uh, right. Um, and when you see, you know, and I, I found, you know, these early news articles um about keith harward's trial and they said that they spent over half an hour just listing Low levine's credentials to this jury you know somebody that was a totally made up field had a half an hour of credentials because he trained all over the world written articles and textbooks and he testified coast to coast he testified in the ted bundy case on and on and The jury was just mesmerized. And we have to remember that Keith Harward was charged with a capital crime. And he got, you know, and he testified on his own behalf, presented his alibi, and he was convicted. And the only reason that he is alive today is that his parents got on the witness stand and begged for his life. Right. It was the only time in Keith Harward's entire life that he had seen his father weep was from the witness stand. When, you know, he's on trial for his life for a crime he didn't commit.
0: So how is so. that indicative of of junk science? It, you, one might say, well, it was imperfect, but uh, eventually, you know, they find out that there are enough mechanisms in place that will find the you know, that will free the the yeah. innocent.
1: You know, that I write a fair amount about that, you know what I mean, and that's just nonsense. You know, what I mean if you, you think about we have two point three million people incarcerated in this country and various forms of incarceration in this country. Two point three more million people, which is, you know, by far the largest rate in the world. Right. And if you think of, you know, maybe one percent have been wrongfully convicted, and I think that that's a conservative number, we're talking about tens of thousands of people. And the Innocence Project is a small organization, and there are you know, similar organizations around the country, but a tiny, tiny percentage. And moreover, and more importantly, is that you know, the cases that I write about you know, are, are horrible, violent crimes, and all, virtually all of our cases are sexual assaults and murders. Right. And that's because DNA evidence is available, much more likely to have been collected and much more likely to be available in these intimate crimes. And that's not true with robberies, burglaries, right. regular street fights. You know, I mean, regular assaults, all kinds of other crimes. So, so, overturning a wrongful conviction is a one in a million shot. You know, I mean, but, it's but nearly w- impossible.
0: So, h- how is it then, though, to get to the crux of it? And we are only we'll only just do this one story. But h- how is it that um, forensic odontology is Well, let me ask you another way. How often is it right?
1: Well, you know, broken clocks are right twice a day, right? Right. So it's like, you know, and it's funny is that, you know, what a lot of junk scientists will say to me often is that, you know, you never want to talk about the cases that would get right. You know, and it's like, well, Well, yeah. Okay. Reporters don't, like, go and report on planes landing safely at the airport, right? Right. We report on plane crashes and the idea that that they have gotten it right really goes back to the ted bundy trial you know what i mean in that and they're still today you know because i'm still litigating against you know the this field and many others tell the ted bundy story and trials today when they talk about the history of mark evidence you know what i mean right. so I still think you know, that's still the only documented time that they probably got it right. And you know the truth is, and when I went back and, and I researched the Bundy case, I, uh, I read every article that um, I could find from the first time that the body started disappearing in, in the Seattle area till the arrest outside, in, outside of Tallahassee in the Florida Panhandle, which is totally fluky arrest. And what was amazing about this was how little evidence they had for the so right. called Chi Omega murders, is that there was one eyewitness who had seen um, a man leaving the front door of the sorority house um, shortly after the murders. But she, under hypnosis again, had wrongfully identified that person as being hmm. an employee of the Chi Omega house. So, because obviously it was only after Ted Bundy was arrested that she said, "Oh no, 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 that's the guy." Right. But plainly, suggestive, you know, single you know, photo that they showed her.
0: I, I was friendly with uh, Ann Rule,
1: um, oh, who wrote the book.
0: Yeah, before she died, and I, I did actually, I was, um, I, I officiated at her memorial service. So I got to know a lot of people that knew her, and it, what was compelling to me. Was that she was, and she talks about it in the book. Um, she was very reluctant to point the finger at Ted Bundy. You um, know, not only did she know him socially before she was asked to investigate him, um, but you know, it didn't add up to her. And I think this is where those cases where you really do need hard evidence, because again, we. we People who commit horrible crimes may not fit our stereotype of what that monster looks like at all. And so that was she said she was kind of blinded by the fact that she had known him socially. Um, And so I I think sort of the opposite of what you're talking about when you're talking about investigators who are blinded uh, by the science, which makes their life a whole lot easier.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know. so my focus was on the forensics of the Bundy case, you know what I mean? And what I learned was that, you know, Sheriff Ken Katarsis, who had just been elected um, right. uh, sheriff there and was only something like 31 years old and had no... Real policing experience and was known as the, the classroom cop um, by his political opponent during the election because his only real law enforcement credential was that he was teaching forensics at the local community college to cops, law enforcement techniques, right? So he knew about bite mark evidence. And there's a, I found the um, reporting on the original um, press conference that he gave after Bundy's arrest. And they said that everybody believed that he had done this. You know, I mean, that, you know, he was the most wanted uh, killer in the world. And he was on the, you know, it was one of the original uh, FBI most wanted lists. He'd been in the area and he said that it fit the pattern of crimes, but they had no physical evidence. And then he mentions a bite mark. And he says, well, somebody said something about bite mark, but that's not real evidence. You know, I mean, it's a really weak impression. I don't think we're going to do anything with that, you know, yada, yada. So they went on and then similar to the Keith Howard case months and months passed without an indictment on those cases and massive amounts of media pressure were coming down. And so what he did is he contacted Dick Suvaron who was like Lowell Levine, one of the original bite mark guys and Suvaron delivered and he and Lowell Levine both testified to that trial. And, you know, you asked me about how often they get it right say, you know, I've seen the injury um, of that they said was a bite mark. Could be and might not be, you know, and right. there's really no way to tell. So even though that they testified and they are credited rightly with, you know, securing that conviction, they could have been completely wrong, and there's no way that any of us would know. So back to the, the,
0: the case of Eddie Harward that the – you know, there was a lot of evidence. It was what he was wearing or accused of what he was wearing. You can grow or shave a mustache. I mean, that's not right. much of a of an indicator of somebody's guilt. But um, it, although Navy investigators had ruled him out originally and said, no, that's not him, uh, it, the same sort of pressure is being applied now. So – how does it – how does junk science, for people who don't understand it, how does that – why is that suddenly wrong? I mean why, why – they've seen it on the CSI. They've seen it on Law & Order. What, what, are the, what, are, what are we getting wrong when it comes to bite-mark evidence?
1: Really, it's true with a lot of – and it's not just bite-mark evidence. You know, it's the subjectivity that we talked about before. You know I mean? And there's no effort to shield the relevant information – from these experts, right? So there's no reason that Lowell Levine needed to know that he was, that Keith Howard was a sailor or that he'd been accused of biting his girlfriend or that he matched a description and nothing about any of that was relevant to whether or not his teeth could have made that mark. Nothing, right. zero. Right. And so that's a huge part of the problem. And another part of the problem, this is true with, you know, almost all forensic techniques, uh, particularly traditional techniques is that there's no measurements taken, right? So this is just eyeballed, right? So this is why fingerprints can go wrong. You know what I mean? Is that you're just making a subjective judgment as sure. well, two things match. Right. And when that happens, you know, your eyes tend to see what they want to see, you know what I mean? And what they expect to see. And this is, you know, it's called confirmation bias. Right. And that you, when you're looking for something in a place where you've think that you're going to find it, that's where you tend to see what your mind tells you, what you expect. Right. to see. So I don't, I'm not saying that, uh, any of these people are doing anything deliberate, you know I mean? It's just that they were wrong. They were engaged in junk science and they, you know, the, the beauty and the tragedy of junk science is that you can get it to say whatever you need it to say. You know I mean? And that's why they're very useful prosecution tools. You know what I mean? Is that, you know, they're going to be very, very persuasive. They're going to sound very science to a jury. I mean, nothing sells better than science, you know, or right. sex in advertising, right? You right. Know, I mean, it's that yeah. scientifically tested and approved, right? That's, right. You know, 20 scientists say it's all the best. I mean, whatever it is.
0: Right. Yeah. Boner pills on NBC News or whatever. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So these are the forces, you know what I mean? And then I don't know if we want to go. Forward with Keith Harward's case, but... Yeah, we do. ...he was convicted. Um, they... His his, his... his conviction was actually reversed on appeal because at the time, and this is Keith Harward's own research that led to this, is that at the time in Virginia, you could not be charged with capital murder for um, a rape and murder unless it was the same person. In other words... Capital crimes are supposed to be if you raped and murdered one person and he had raped, or he was convicted of raping one person and murdering another. So, you know, they really, the ultimate technicality, You're Right. He reversed the conviction and the Levine and the other dentist gave the same testimony again, his parents begged for his life again, and he was convicted again. And what Mr. Howard would tell you is that he gave up hope completely. And 33 years went by, um, That he spent enduring the Virginia penal system, where the world passed him by. You know, I mean, he never got married, never had kids, never had a career. His, um, you know, the internet happened. You know, I mean, and there was just, you know, a whole world just, you know, passed him by. His parents died, never seeing him outside of prison walls. His brothers, who had been at the trial, you know, had drifted away, and had full careers and families and retired. And then, um, you know, we started the strategic litigation department at the Innocence Project and I was hired to begin. And I don't become a character in the story until about, in the book until about halfway through. And this was, you know, the first case that we went and looked for.
0: And you can't help it because you're such an instrumental actor. I mean, you're such an instigator um, that you have to be. So this is not a case where it was like a vanity play or something like that, where you wanted to be a part of it. All right, that's where we're going to pick it up. And I think it's only fair since we left the other two stories um, undiscussed, if that's such a word. Um, then let, let's let, let's find out what happened. We'll, we'll give you some a conclusion about this case. On Coast to Coast AM next. Just uh, heard an interesting story. Um, It was uh, tweeted to me uh, at or exed to me at Deacon Punnett, Uh, and it's about uh, the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office going to quote outrageous lengths to make law-abiding lonely guys into sex offenders. We'll talk about that too when we come back with junk science. And the American criminal justice system, but first we have to wrap up our first story uh, with uh, Chris Fabricant. What what exactly uh, did, were was a independent investigation able to uncover that proved uh, the innocence of a guy who had spent m- more than three decades in prison for a crime that he didn't commit, when every other indication. A reasonable person might look at and say yep he did it next on Coast to Coast AM this is Ian Punnett talking with uh, Chris Fabricant and uh, uh, we'll do open we'll do the lines coming up at top of the hour not open lines but we'll take questions and comments for Chris about this on the way on Coast to Coast the Junk Science and American Justice Criminal System book is similar to the uh, and obviously similar, but I mean they follow the same thread as that Netflix series, which was super good um, about the Innocence Project called The Innocence Files. Um, so, Chris, you, you were we were just talking about where where did this go? How, how did we get out of this situation? How, how was it that he didn't spend the rest of his natural life behind bars?
1: So what happened was. Is that in 2012 you know we um, decided it wasn't you know we talked earlier about you know the way that the Innocence Project takes cases uh, based solely on biological evidence and and that continues to be largely true but with strategic litigation what we decided to do is go and look for criminal convictions that rest on junk science because we know that any conviction that rests on junk science is inherently unreliable Right. And so I um, had my paralegals scouring um, Westlaw and other legal databases, old newspaper reports, old archives, CVs of expert witnesses and that are you know notorious young scientists to look at all the cases that they testified in. And my paralegal Eric Pilch, she came across Keith Harward's um, the opinion, the appellate opinion in this case. And he sent the the opinion to me, and he you know, was like, "Hey, Chris, check this out." And so I I read the opinion, and it talks about you know how grotesque the murder was, you know, I mean, and 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 all of the facts of the case. But what was to me um, really, really surprising, having you know, read, you know, it like, you know, tens of thousands of, of legal opinions was that usually a, um, an opinion like this really makes the person out to be obviously guilty. Right. And the, it, it felt like, you know, between lines that there was some skepticism in the appellate opinion. But I pointed to case law that said bite marks were valid and reliable, and it said if they were believed, then he was obviously the killer. But if you were skeptical like I am about bite mark evidence, he sounded innocent. And I was looking at the facts of the case, and and you could see that they had, you know, if any of this evidence was reserved, it would be all over this crime scene, right? Because it was a long sexual assault. They had smoked cigarettes together. They had drank Pepsi together. You know I mean? There are lots of opportunities for DNA evidence to be there. But, of course, it had been since the 80s, you know, so you never know. You know I mean? And, you know, we're looking at, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of cases. And so I had a legal fellow follow up on it. And he called at some point. He called the Virginia Supreme Court, and they have – a lot of records from, you know, various cases in in storage. And he was looking for the transcripts for the trial, you know, the original trial. And because we were trying to piece together everything that had happened to it. And the, um, and I should I should actually go back to, you know, after we when we first got the the case, we I wrote to, to Keith Harward and asked him if he was you know, because he'd written to us years before but we had never gotten to his case. And the um he was like, Are you still interested in, in representation? And he was like, Oh yeah. And Keith Harward was dying in prison at that time and terrible health care and needed the surgery immediately and to be frank and I, I wrote about this I thought he was going to die before anything could be done with his case and right. you know, we at the Innocence Project have all had clients die in prison that we thought were innocent and that's you know really really heartbreaking sure and so we signed him up and we were looking for the original transcripts and then um, the legal fellow um, got one of the uh, court officers on the phone and to and asked him to look for the transcripts and he couldn't find me. But but he's like, you know, we have this box of evidence here. Are you interested in this? How about that? Said, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> said, right. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. We want right. it. We'll be right over. Yeah. Right. And so, um, inside that evidence box was the original rape kit that had been um, Wow. Uh, to Teresa Perone. Um, wow. There was a diaper. There were um, cushions from the couch in which he'd been assaulted on—it was all there, and you know that's just you know a one in a zillion chance. You know, what I mean, no, oh, sure, it happens. You know, what I mean, and and what is maybe equally unlikely, and this is a real tragic aspect of innocence work, and it happens every day. It's happening in lots of our cases right now. Is that prosecutors will. We refuse to test the DNA evidence and we'll litigate against the testing of evidence and point to the principle of finality, you know, and that jury's verdict should be final. And then sometimes we can't get DNA testing. And I could never understand why a prosecutor wouldn't want to know the truth and what they would be afraid of. And But to their credit, the Virginia, the uh, Newport News district attorney, had agreed to have the evidence tested. And we, he was immediately, Keith Harward was immediately excluded from all of the DNA. And then, um, you know, and so we were, you know, over the moon by that. And then um, they were able to develop full profiles of the DNA. In other words, they weren't partial profiles. They were real and that they were consistent. It was the same man's DNA that was on the couch Christian. so it was um, on the diaper that was in the rape kit and in the bedroom. And so
0: his was, DNA is all over that scene. It, there weren't two people. It wasn't a partial. This was, this was as big a bullseye as you could ever hope for. Yep,
1: yeah, and then, so we were, you know, but in Virginia is a very, very difficult place to litigate, and, you know, we sometimes get you know, and this is uh, something else that I write about in the book. You know, so-called co-undead uh, co ejaculator theories. Right? Ugh, right. So what what this happens is that prosecutors will invent new stories to explain away. You know. Right. Forensic DNA. Must have been
0: another guy that was there too. You know, we'll never know.
1: And this was, you know, but we had a living victim, and um, and then they, but we had the full profile and the. DA agreed to upload it into the national DNA database called CODIS, and then we got a hit. And we identified the man whose DNA was all over that crime scene, and he was an AWOL soldier or AWOL sailor from the USS Carl Vincent named Jerry Crotty. And he had died in prison in uh, 2010 after having gone on to commit many, many more crimes against women. In the ensuing years, that Keith Harward was doing his time. And I was actually giving a talk at the Innocence Network conference in San Antonio when we got this news. And I got off the stage and with my co counsel, um, Olga Axelrod and Dana Delger, we were all there and watched a news conference by the the Virginia Attorney General, who, after they got the results of this, and we were already litigating. Um, to get him released in the Virginia Supreme Court and the A G um asked the court to actually but I admitted that they were wrong, that they had gotten the wrong man, which is also just, you know, astonishing thing. And so we watched this. We all got the next flight to Virginia um the next morning. We flew to um the prison in Norwalk and um he was going to be released, you know, the, the next day and which is, you know, head spinningly fast. And, and, you know, Mr. Harward, you know, and, um, spent the night before as a free man, but he, they couldn't let him into general population and he just kind of paced his cell all night. He was still recovering from, he had, you know, a colonoscopy bag, you know, and he was still right. for physical health and, um, we arrived at the prison, and, um, you know, they let us go all the way in and um, into the, the kind of inner sanctum where they were holding Keith Harward, who was going to be released at a, a specific time, I think it was 11, and that there was going to be a big press conference outside the prison. And so we're sitting there, um, you know, and and Mr. Harward is really um, – Kind of shell shocked, you know, by the whole thing, you know, and then suddenly because
0: it was that oh, fast too, after you know,
1: all these years, right, right, thirty three years, and so then we're sitting there waiting for the appointed hour, and you know, he's, and suddenly the the inner door creaks open, and two old men come, the civilians come hobbling in, and I hear this gasp behind me from Mr. Harward and he gets up and he shuffles over to him and his his brothers. They let him into the prison and they just collapsed into each other and they hadn't seen each other for twenty some odd years. Ugh. And they're reuniting Ugh. like this. You know, I mean and I uh it was, you know, and you know some of the other scenes that I write about in the book or, you know, where I feel very privileged to have been witness to. Right. And also just kind of you know, blown away by it, you know I mean? And as we walked out to, you know, to do his press conference, you know, I was chatting with his older brother who was in his eighties and um, who had gone to the trial every day and had always believed in his brother's innocence, but he was telling me about Lowell Levine's courtroom presentation that it was so mesmerizing and so persuasive that he began to doubt his own brother's guilt. Right. Said that you know what are my baby brother's teeth doing on her thighs? How do right. you explain that? And right. I think he had a certain amount of guilt about that. You know, I mean that he'd been hoodwinked by the junk science that it was. So, well, well, that he could so how
0: how had the how, how was it that they got it wrong? And what was the actual science part? about the forensic dental work that puts it in the category of just purely speculative science that has no basis
1: in fact? Well, you know, there's never been a single proficiency test, right, to show that the dentist can um, actually associate anybody with a bite mark or match anybody to a bite mark. Okay. And then there was also something that a lot of people didn't realize until much later, and this is something um, that happened around 2016, when they finally did a little bit of research. But I think probably your listeners and probably you have been thinking about bite marks in your mind's Eye, they look like bite marks, right? Something that you right. see toddlers come home from day school, daycare, you know, sure. and say, "Oh, hey, Johnny bit and you can see like, right. you know, a you know, nice clean bite mark. That's just never what you see in casework. You know, if you, you know, if you're listening to Google the Ted Bundy bite mark and you look at it, you know, you can maybe invent in your mind that it's a bite mark, but it could be anything. And because nobody was ever there, right? Nobody watched this happen. And, you know, Teresa Prone, in this case, you actually knew that it was bite mark. But if you talked about it in terms of the, the technique in general, is that we assumed that there that wasn't really an issue but they did a study um in 2016 and they took all the most um experienced qualified to the extent you can be qualified in junk science um, experts in the field and gave them a hundred different photographs and casework of entries and asked them to make a diet. is this a bite mark or not a bite mark or is it inconclusive Hmm. and these experts were all over the map. Some said it was, right. some said it wasn't. They're, they're about a third, a third, a third in all of them. And they just say they're, you, know, you don't have any reliability there. So what, if you have two experts that are looking at the same evidence and coming to opposite conclusions, you have a strong indicator that it's junk science. And what was incredible about that particular study was that there was only one injury that they knew ground truth. In other words, they knew what had created it. And somebody had cut themselves with a box cutter and he looked at it and he said, geez, that kind of looks like a bite mark. And so they included it in the study. And that was one of the very few of the hundred different injuries that they looked at where there was close to unanimity on that it was in fact a bite mark. And it was the only one that they knew was not a bite mark. Right. So So, there's that. There's subjectivity. There's ever changing skin. There's really nothing that could ever be done reliably about bite mark evidence.
0: So, but it's still being done today.
1: Yes, it's still admissible in all fifty states. Okay. And this last summer, well, I guess it's not last summer yet. It's the uh, yeah, in in June in in New Jersey, prosecutor was trying to get it um, admitted in a homicide case, and um, I got involved in the case and. As soon as we started litigating it, they withdrew the evidence, and right. you know they didn't want to deal with like having to defend it. But yeah, right, it's still admissible. Yeah, every technique that I write about in junk science is still admissible today.
0: That's terrifying, absolutely terrifying. I, I was I, before we started back up again. I, I shared a story from um, a guy on Twitter who had sent this to me about how this one sheriff's department in Florida seemed to have it as part of their policy to try to lure innocent people in in what we might consider to be kind of classic frame-ups uh in this case it was it was a 20-year-old guy who had lived alone Uh, And there was somebody who posed as a 14-year-old girl, and he's rebuffing every attempt that she's making to engage him in a sexual conversation or exchange nude photos. It's not that he doesn't continue in the conversation, but he keeps it really generic. And there is no one moment where he says to her— uh, hey, what do you say? Meet you at the Denny's or whatever, or let's run away. There isn't anything. There's is nothing about sex whatsoever, and she keeps bringing it up. Or the police investigator posing as this 14 year old. So is is the same thing true with junk science that there are there are areas of the country that are more inclined to use it, more you know, district attorneys that are more inclined to try to cut those corners by using junk science?
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know, I mean, and I, you know, it's funny as, you know, the, I write about it, you know, in the David Wayne Spence case in Texas is a good example of this is that, um, is where I argue and as a wrongful execution based on bite mark evidence in the, um, and the prosecutor in that case had prior experience with bite mark evidence and there was that was had been useful for a homicide prosecution and he brought in he was brought in specifically to um, work capital cases in Waco where this triple right. homicide had happened. And they had never developed um, any evidence against the suspects Bent. But they believed that he had done this. And the prosecutor asked that the body be checked for bite marks. If anybody looked at it. And he eyeballed it himself and said, hey, there's one. And then they got up some bite mark experts sure. who uh, made the match. And, and David Winspen was ultimately executed. The What you have with junk science is the, you know, and, and this is really also a product of our, our legal system is that, Prosecutors are ethically obligated to believe in the guilt of the people that they prosecute, right? And the and because all these techniques are admissible, they will use every available weapon that they have to prosecute. And so, junk science is used. You know, I mean, and that they it's easy to rationalize because they believe that they're. Convicting guilty people, you're we talking about is manufacturing crimes, you know which is different With well,
0: it studies, is different, but it goes to show you some departments have a pattern of that, and then once it becomes accepted, they just keep repeating the pattern,
1: yeah well, you're right, and the you know and this is excellent to paint a bullseye around the target you know what I mean is uh, right. once you've decided that you know you know the other one of the other cases I write about the Howard they just decided it was him. They got his dental mold before they even examined the body for bite marks. Hmm. They just said that we're going to find some bite marks in this body and we're going to match Eddie Lee Howard's teeth to it and that's going to be it. Let's be ready.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, All right. So we're going to give everybody the phone number so they can join the conversation too with uh, Chris Fabricant, Junk Science, and the American criminal justice system. It's probably not you. It may be a family member, um, but it's it's always good to get a second opinion coming up next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett.